retribution tends to be a very base and innate way to go because they don't have the tools yet to have true community. Yeah. You know, and, and so, yeah, you uh, are mean to me. I hit you. I bite you. Bite you. Bite you yeah. is the one that kids will do. Because <laughs> we have strong jaws. Um, but yeah. what it is is saying, notice me. Hello, welcome back to Barefoot to Emmaus. This is Char. And this is Byron. We're glad you're with us. Today, we've come to the end in some regards of our uh, classes. I guess we kind of sort of have half of a week. This is the end. (laughs) It has come. And I felt it'd be a great time to talk about some of our course content. um, Yeah. Which, of course, we've already been doing, more or less. But... um, in today's lecture in Dr. Day's class on uh, decolonial theories of justice, we started with our decolonial theorists at the beginning. So Amy Cesare, um, Edward Said, uh, Emily Towns, uh, Toni Morrison. We started it there, and then we moved to more of what are considered in the white patriarchal normative form of ed- Western education, you know, the, the, um, the classics, right? So we went to... Um, we went to Reinhold Niebuhr. We went to Rawls, John Rawls. But anyway, today we covered Martha Nussbaum, who is a Aristotelian philosopher. Um, and in our reading for class today, it was on anger and forgiveness. And she had, so that's what I would like to talk about, anger and forgiveness. Hmm. She had an interesting take on anger. And this is the reason why it was percolating in my mind and why I'd like to bring it up to you, that um, from this Aristotelian perspective... Anger is inherently tied to a desire for payback, a desire for retribution. Hmm. That there's this sense that if you are not experiencing a desire for retribution, your emotion is therefore not anger. It might be grief. It might be... Um, frustration? Um, yeah, it would be interesting to, you know, indignation, frustration, anger, how much, when we get into the weeds of nuance of semantics... Um, to a certain extent, her argument does feel like semantics because she, um, you know, is defining it almost in a circular way that it is this thing because anything that differs from it is actually not anger. And I think in a more, um, in the uh, wider use of the term anger, we we would recognize certain things as anger that she might not consider anger. Sure, or like wrath. Like wrath is a word that yeah. fits in the anger corner but like that one does imply some sense of violence. It does, doesn't it? And I think based on her upbringing, um, wrath is her understanding of anger. Yeah. In a lot of ways. So I really wanted to open up and unpack the question of anger. And the reason why I want to talk about this in part, not only the lecture today, but also a conversation that I've been hearing more and more recently, which is this uh, pushback against what I think is deriving from Christian culture, but it has reached the... Um, secular main stage as well, this idea that you don't have to forgive people mm. and that being an empowering position that it is for your benefit sometimes to not forgive. Don't listen to the hype. You don't feel like you need to be pressured to forgive all the time. That does feel Aristotelian. 
So, yeah, so... Well, uh, yeah, the reason I say it feels Aristotelian is because we were talking in my friendship, love, and justice class, mm-hmm. which kind of feels like it's the positive emphases sure. against, like, anger and violence or whatever. But, like, this idea of love your en- love your neighbor and this Christian command of love your enemy, even, mm. it is pretty counterintuitive to humanity. And Aristotle specifically, Professor Boulin was like, no, Aristotle says the just thing is to kill your enemy like <laughs> your enemy is your enemy yeah you have no and so I, I feel like yeah there's there's kind of that there's a moral philosophical branch that is like yeah no forgiveness is not necessary and yeah hmm. yeah okay I think if we put in dialogue what we've been learning from these two different classes that might make for a really interesting discussion I just want to finish up quickly on what Nussbaum says about anger so she identifies Uh, a form of anger that is helpful that she calls transitional anger. And the reason why it's helpful is because you let anger be the catalyst to care and concern, investment, um, in a eudaimonistic way. So the sense of things that matter to me. Um, But then you don't, then you let go of the anger after you have been activated. (laughs) So you replace the anger with looking out for the positive of, of others. So I, yeah, this is more or less her argument is that um, we as a society have normatized anger and anger is not in fact. When is she from? Ooh, um, she's contemporary. Okay. Yeah. I don't know when exactly this book was written, but within the last four decades, five decades probably. Um, So yeah, what do we make of anger? Is anger valuable? Is it inherently violent and or morally corrupt, morally unjust? Does does anger necessarily or necessitate sin? Is anger sin? I feel like these are a lot of the questions where I want to start in our conversation on anger. Yeah. I mean, the, the first question, I'd like to go... I'd like to push more into what you're saying Mm -hmm. because my first question is, are we talking about human anger? Are we talking about divine anger? Yeah. This conversation, Martha Nussbaum's conversation is about human anger. She's a sociologist. She's a philosopher. But I think as Christians, as spiritual people who seek to be in relationship with God and in some ways vessels of God's love, it might be worth considering, can we be vessels of God's anger in a righteous sense? So we might distinguish, but even if we were to claim human anger yeah. as unjust, God's anger as just or righteous, can we be vessels then of God's righteous anger? Yeah, I feel like one typical, like super simple answer to this in terms of what I've seen in Christian practice is people do say that anger is a sin mm-hmm. um, or a mistake or, or whatever. Um, but then to solve it, all they do is slap righteous on the front of it. And now it's suddenly okay. <laughs> That's a very good observation. I have seen that happen in probably more the liberal Christian spaces. Yeah. yeah. But you're right. We we don't do anything to change our anger. We just contextualize it by calling it righteous. And that's not to say that there isn't such thing as righteous anger, but maybe a safeguard or, or um, a point of that we should be aware is that how easy it is to fall into that pattern of claiming our anger is righteous when it might not be. Yeah. Yeah. 
There are a lot of questions on the table. You can take it wherever you want right now. I mean, I... Honestly, what's coming up to my head is that Yoda quote to Anakin in, I think it's uh, The Clone Wars, um, where he says, it's kind of this Buddhist idea of attachment. Um, Mm. Anakin's afraid of losing his mom, and Yoda says... He's he's saying like I I sense a lot of fear in you, and mm. he's saying uh, like your your fear is coming from attachment and your fear of losing that attachment. And so Yoda says, fear is the path to the dark side. Mm. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Mm. And so I'm I'm just using that quote, bringing it up as this idea of what is the source of anger. I feel like anger is something that arises. And th- this is why my proposal is actually, you know, counter to what maybe Yoda is saying. I think that anger is something that arises when your boundaries are crossed. Mm. And integrity to your own boundaries is, in my mind, a, a good thing, at least socially, right? Even, I don't think that God would say, in the self-sacrificial system of Christianity, I don't think our boundaries being crossed without our consent. God is not saying suddenly that's a good thing. Yeah. We should get to the point where we are willing to have our boundaries crossed for the sake of love or, like, in Christian self-emptying and compassion or whatever, but it's still, like, it's not good unless you're at a spot where you can acknowledge it as good. That's maybe a, a small tangent, but but anger is something that arises, in my mind, from injustice or perceived injustice. And maybe the yeah. difference between those two mm-hmm. is is critical. Yeah. The Nussbaum would say, from, again, an Aristotelian perspective, it is a slighting. Yeah. And by slighting, it is um, to put you at a lower status level. So if someone ignores you, in some ways they're saying that they're more important than you. Mm. Um, but then you can extrapolate on that to systemic levels of, you know, injustice as a form of slighting other human beings, and, and even in terms of larger demographics. Yeah, I don't know. This, this is one of those, like, this, yeah, you're right. This immediately gets to a justice question. Yeah. And I, I brought up the idea of real or perceived injustice mm-hmm. or slighting. Is there a point at which you can look broadly enough and be like, no, you being lowered down is actually also justice yeah as opposed to lowering someone who has no food mm-hmm. that's injustice lowering yeah. someone who has an excess of food is not an injustice there's a saying for the one who is used to privilege yeah. equality feels like oppression yeah yeah so <laughs> Bib- biblically speaking this is the example uh that the prophet nathan brings up to king david mm-hmm I best remember it from VeggieTales. There once was a man, a very rich man. He had a lot of cattle and he had a lot of land. Something, something. There once was a very rich man. Then one day, I'm just singing it because it'll take just as long to sing it (laughs) as say it. And it's more fun to sing it. There came a guest to the house of the rich man. And then it says, there once was a man, a very poor man. He had next to nothing just a little lamb but he loved it like a son and he fed it from his hand yes there once was a very poor man and so the guest comes to the house of the rich man and 
uh, Pa Grape, who plays Nathan, says, <laughs> what did he do? Can you guess to feed the guest of the rich man? And then Larry, King David, says, well, he had lots of sheep, and blah, 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 he could have given some of his own. And Nathan says, he took the very, very poor man's lamb. That's and so that's sad. the idea of injustice, <laughs> right? Mm. That, whoa. That, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's an interesting thing because you can interpret that um, taking of the lamb saying, well, that was the one, that was the guy who was to be fed. You know, he was hungry. The poor man was hungry. And so he needs to be fed. And then almost putting the onus on him in some way of like, well, he's got this lamb. I don't know if this was the um, message. There's three people in the story. There's a poor man, there's a rich man, and then there's a guest who comes to the house oh, of the rich man. okay, it's not feeding so, the poor man. No, it's, the okay, rich okay. man is killing the poor man's sheep to feed his own guest. Got it, okay. Yeah. I split up the song. Maybe it was confusing. No, no, that, that, make, that makes more sense, though. And so they both lost the same amount. They were both taken down a peg by the same amount. But because of a broader view of, of the society and the resources and, and something, one of those is unjust and the other isn't. One of those being... To just take, being taking your own lamb if you have plenty. Yeah. Or even, maybe, debatably, taking a rich person's without their consent. Yeah, yeah. So that is the difficult question about justice. Is, but they'd probably still be angry about it. <laughs> they would feel slighted. And it is a perceived uh, slighting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the issue of justice as it intersects with legality you know, we we assume the law to mm. be the arbiter of justice, but mm. in fact, it is itself a social construct. And I'd like to believe that justice transcends law. Like prior to legal systems being created, there was a sense of justice. Yeah. Um, and so justice isn't, in fact, dictated by legality, but hopefully directs legality. And in many cases, um, the law is then unjust. Yeah. And as MLK says, an unjust law is no law at all. Which he actually gets from Augustine, so... Hey. <laughs> but but you're right. As Christians, we have, I mean, I think Augustine is really important here. Augustine writes these this book on the two cities, mm-hmm. the city of, of man or humanity and the city of God. And because of that, we as Christians have two different understandings of the law. There's like social law, mm-hmm. and you can point that to like various European philosophers and their idea of positive freedom and negative freedom and Kierkegaard and Kant and all of these people talking about like, like following the law will bind you in a certain way, but it binds you in a way that frees you for greater freedom. Mm. And Christians pick that up too, because the other side of the law is this thing that God gave at Sinai. Mm-hmm. These like suggestions, uh, maybe commandments. Um, Mild suggestions. <laughs> well, well, no, I, I say I say that because you shall love the Lord your God mm. is an, it's like an operative. It's not like... Love the Lord your God is a commandment. You shall love is, suggestion is too soft of a word. I forget the... Exhortation? Yeah. And that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. And and so, like, what do we do with the, like, Old Testament law? And Paul picks it up to say, like, uh, that it's only really there to convict you. Mm. That if the law weren't there, you wouldn't be convicted. And I think you were saying something a little bit deeper like maybe this is the idea of the law written on our hearts is mm-hmm. that like human conscience or conscience or human morality. Yeah. Law written on our hearts that we can interpret two ways. One 
perhaps something that's truly intrinsic to being made in the image of God, mm. but then also to the interplay of God's relationship with us um, that has always been God's desire that we would conform to God's self. We would be, we would enter into intimacy with God to where the law as an institution, which is on the basis of distrust, yeah, that it needs an inhuman structure, a structure that can exist independently of any individual person, mm-hmm. you know, to mitigate our worst human impulses. Because it's not intuitive. Sure. Or natural. Natural is, yeah, exactly. Institutions are not natural. Um, whereas relationship is natural. And in relationship is where uh, trust exists mm. and where a law that is written on our hearts where that writing can even take place, mm. you know, for something to be written on your heart, who's going to do the writing? That, you know, it, God being in relationship with you is how that's taking place. Kind of the idea of give us the desires of your heart, oh God? Yeah, and, and that requires listening. That mm-hmm. requires engaging with God, you know, give us not, um, you know, conform us or force us in a um, removed sense, you know, in in a mandated sense. I don't know. I'm just thinking about what you yeah. said about um, suggestion or exhortation of the commandments. I, I hadn't thought about that before, but I think it's really interesting to think about God not as one who uh, creates an institution saying, do this law or this punishment will exist. Yeah. Because that does feel like a lot of what we see in, say, Leviticus, mm. you know, these laws of stoning and, and whatever. It seems like there is a statement of this is the law, this is the code, and if you break it, here's the punishment. But we don't necessarily see that with the commandments. Right. Which feels the most intimately bound to what we would hear from God. You know, compared to the Levitical laws, that makes sense to be something constructed within the priestly order, mm-hmm. you know, for a sense of being set apart from other peoples. Uh, maybe one more step removed from directly hearing from God. And where the human element can interject and create legality as opposed to relational exhortation. Yeah. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It it really does. I it feels like the difference between almost the letter of the law and spirit of the law in that sense. There there's so many images here. I don't want to mm-hmm. like stick it to law, but one of the I think the value of bringing it to law is because by adhering to a law, you are deliberately limiting yourself. Mm-hmm. You are taking yourself down a a certain peg. Mm-hmm. And and because we're talking about injustice, you are you are admitting to and uh, you are assenting to a certain type of injustice to be done to you, i.e. limitation, following the law, I'm not going to run this red light, I'm, you know, whatever. But you're calling it good. And so you're not angry about following the law if it's a just law. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's, this is so funky when like, Trying to explain something, I feel like I have to bring up other kind of philosophical concepts that didn't help me to learn it, but it now helps me. Like it has become my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So, like the idea of negative freedom and positive freedom. Negative yeah. freedom is kind of this anarchy of like, I am absolutely free to do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. But the implication of that in community is that actually you're limited because now, now we are all like worried about everyone else's freedom impinging on our own yeah yeah and so this is that like weird thing of 
submitting to a law, hopefully an unjust law. Uh, so sorry, submitting to a law, hopefully a just law. And God, relationally, is the heart of the law, relationship with God. So then submitting to God, submission is that thing that, like, if it's unjust or if it's outside of consent, like, that's what causes the injury that makes people angry. Mm -hmm. Versus relationally following a law might look the exact same type of limitation, but you're not angry about it. I'm trying to link this back to anger in the sense <laughs> I and, and try I to get that. out of this like law <laughs> rut that we got because because this is one of the main reasons why I I say my classic phrase laws are for babies. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, laws are for babies because um, you need structure. Babies need structure. Yeah, you know. But what you're describing, what I hear you describing, is less actually about legality and more about a communal ethos that is collectively ascribed to. Yes. So the legality is uh, if you need to be told what to do, you're actually not a good person. Mm. And if you need to be punished in order to be held to doing a certain thing, that's even worse. Mm-hmm. So let's steer this back. The way that I see this relating to anger, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think perhaps the reason why we went down this route is because um, legality is linked to uh, justice, yes. particularly in a uh, distrustful. And when I say distrustful, yeah. I mean like it requires having systems in place that are independent or impar- theoretically impartial outside mm. of ourselves mm. um, that can mitigate our worst impulses because we don't trust that the other will be respectful or honoring. And this is the thing with anger is that I personally, let me mm. put my cards on the table here, pushing back a little against Nussbaum, um, I think anger is an activation or accelerant towards justice. Yeah, yeah. Th- that it is um, an energy that I think is really raw and, and in some ways really carnal, really um, primitive to like our reptilian brain, mm. you know. But it is uh, the most, perhaps the most simplistic emotional language that we have for seeking justice. Yeah. We have evolved to have more complicated emotional language around right and wrong, mm. morality, ethics, and, and the language and, and systemic constructs that we create, even legality as like our systems today is created from these higher um, levels of feeling and thinking. Mm. But on a most base level, anger is saying, no, that's not right. And it could be, no, that's not right against me. No, that's not right about, against someone I care about. No, it's not right against this principle or a collective that I might not have any relationship with, but I still think that's not right. Yeah. You know? And so the issue that I see pushing back against Nussbaum is that I think she overgeneralizes based on her experience of anger in the past, something that she's probably ashamed of Mm. having shame of like, I'm not allowed to feel angry. And then that shame um, overwhelms and circumscribes her entire picture of anger that she can't develop the nuance. Yeah. You know, um, and, and it makes sense that retribution is uninstinctual drive with anger. It's not the only one, but it's certainly a drive. And I would say in children, and you've worked a lot, probably more with, with children than I have, so please either confirm or deny this, um, very often before they have higher levels of emotional reasoning and, and verbal communication, mm-hmm. retribution tends to be a very base and innate way to go because they don't have the tools yet to have true community, yeah, you know? And, and so, yeah, you, 
uh, are mean to me, I hit you. I bite you. Bite you. Bite you yeah. is the one that kids will do. Because <laughs> we have strong jaws. Um, but yeah. what it is is saying, notice me. Yeah. Pay attention to me. You yep. did me wrong. And I don't have the words to tell you what you did or why you did it or why I'm hurt, mm-hmm. what I'm feeling. What I can say is I have a really effective way of making you realize that you hurt me. Yeah. And that's by hurting you back. That's That's what our pain receptors do to ourselves. I love that. Right? The only, I mean... If you if you cut your hand open or you like, you know, hit stub your toe, like your your nerves get angry. They say <laughs> you need to notice this for a good reason. Yeah, it is a good thing. Yeah, I agree with that very strongly. And and something like sadness or grief, I think, is another form of responding to injustice. But it is not the energized catalyst towards changing. Yeah. It's the place that we come to when we can't change. You know, when, when you lose someone and you can't bring them back. Right. You know, your anger might be at God at first of like, why did you do this? And, and desiring some sense of being seen. Mm-hmm. I need you to see me. You know, but then you come ultimately, I would say, healthily come to a place of saying, there's nothing else to do. Mm. And, and you're sad. Yeah. And sadness as a social species, evolutionarily, I think... Um, is our way of true solidarity. Mm. You can't change it, but you can be with me. Mm. I'm crying, you sit with me. You know, and scripturally, we have this notion to mourn with those who mourn. And I think that is this sense of, yeah, when it comes down to it, there's going to be brokenness and evil and injustice. And and, and sometimes there's literally nothing you can do. Yeah. And so what does it mean then to be present and to love? And I think that's where sadness comes in. But anger, that is driven it has energy and passion and desire and movement could you say like sorrow is a silent form of anger say more sorrow in distinction from sadness or yeah no 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 no, same thing um yeah just this idea of i don't know i'm thinking of like elephants and crows and like dolphins and and chimpanzees and like what we would call smarter animals more intelligent just bigger brains um problem-solving skills, social, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the features of these animals is not just anger. We see, we see. A t- I, I feel like, yeah, you're kind of building this idea that, like, sorrow is a more articulate and yet silent response. Well, it doesn't have to know. be silent. I guess, tell me more what you mean by silent, but when I hear silent, I think withdrawing. Um even if you're in the presence of people, you don't. You're not communicating. Well, like, you're you're concealing your sorrow. The reason I'm saying I'm talking about like elephants and crows and stuff is because they don't talk to each other in like particularly articulate ways. Sure. As far as as far as we know, they just don't seem to have a vocabulary that goes much beyond like mm-hmm. like. But you don't really need a vocabulary for either anger, as you said, you yeah, know, hitting, biting, mm-hmm. snapping it, whatever. But sorrow is also just one where it's like an elephant will sit next to another elephant after its baby has died or something. Like there's there's yeah. grief there. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's a type of, I'm also just thinking of like temperament. Mm. Like I know some babies who, you know, you you take their toy away and they'll like try to bite you. Uh, other babies, like you take their toy away and they'll be like, oh, okay. And so temperament is like a huge thing there that I don't really know what to do with because that's non-equalizing. Yeah. That's non-unifying. Do you think it has to do with uh, lack of scarcity? 
if they if their toy isn't taken away that I, they I think that temperament is is related to something that's probably nature and nurture. Okay. But it, it appears so early mm. that I think it's probably more nature. Yeah. Nurture can certainly affect it, but Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. So that that was I mean, it's not an important idea. I just think I really love your idea that sorrow is a is in some ways a more articulate response to a type of anger or an anger that you can't actually do anything about. I'm thinking as an actor, right? Like classic anger is the like easiest and lowest, least interesting action that an actor can ever mm-hmm. do. It's the, it's the simplest, most base emotion. Mm-hmm. It's very it, like you see a young actor or like a new actor. And if they're constantly going to anger in like an improv scene or something, that's the sign of like a, unimaginative kind of uncreative actor yeah so how do we then move to where anger can be honored because I think that in the unnuanced narrative that tends to take place in social media or just broad stream, mainstream culture, you know, broader prolific messages never carry nuance. That's, you know, small travels fast. Easy tra- travels fast. Yeah. Um, Only a Sith dealer's in <laughs> And so, so the idea of anger being something that we either reject or we accept tends to look at all of what anger is rather than having a more nuanced clarification. I'm thinking now maybe even like, let's say you were the victim of a grave injustice. Sure. This is now maybe moving into the conversation about forgiveness too. Um, One story that stands out to me is uh, there's, I believe it was a Jewish community that was... uh, the victim of a mass shooting, this school of their children. Mm. Um, and it might've been Amish actually. Um, I think it was Amish. Um, and the whole community showed up to the funeral of the mass shooter who, who took his own life too mm. and comforted the mom and said, we forgive you. And on the one hand, that seems really powerful and profound that they could reach that level of forgiveness that quickly. On the other hand, there is some pushback that maybe anger is more righteous in that context and, and is forgiveness in some ways, um, inappropriate, especially if it's something that is imposed upon them, that they are culturally felt, uh, forced into Mm. that forgiveness. There's Mm. an expectation. Like as Jesus says, you know, to Peter, don't just forgive seven times, but 70 times, seven times. Yeah. Basically this essence of like above and above and beyond. It's not saying 490 and you're done, right? Um, But what about the ways that turn the other cheek has been misinterpreted and, and imposed upon the victims of injustice to say, you know, forgive your oppressor when they're still oppressing you. Or even if they're not still oppressing you in the same regard, there's been no attempt at reconciliation on their end. Right. Why is the emotional burden on yours? You know, so so I think this question of the righteousness of anger, the uh, effectiveness, efficacy of anger, 
um, compared to something like forgiveness? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Moving on to forgiveness is is makes a lot of sense, but uh, like forgiveness is is really conditional, I think. Not in not in that like typical external sense of like I'll forgive you if, mm. but it is it's conditional on yourself. Mm. You cannot declare you have just forgiven someone. Like there there that's a that's a technique. I've tried to do that before, you know, fake it till you make it mm. in forgiveness. It's like, I, I, you know, this is weaker than make a covenant, but like, I promise to you that I will not, you know, avenge the thing. So I have in practice forgiven as much as it concerns you, but the remainder of like, but the remainder of the work still has to be done in myself. And there's no guarantee that that will happen. Like, that's what I mean about forgiveness being conditional. You can't just you can't just say like it it's not you. real forgiveness if you're forced to do it. Like I hate mm. it when parents are like, "Now oh, apologize your to your sister." <laughs> yeah, it's not an authentic apology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it might have some social role. Sure, like it, it probably does a little bit of of work, but like resentment, I would I would rather have open hostility mm. than mm. secret resentment. Mm. And I think that might be part of the conversation around anger. Yeah, is a recognition that when people are forced into forgiveness it's not always authentic yeah. rarely authentic if it's forced and and yeah and what is the importance of having open and honesty in emotions or experiences that we censor that we are ashamed of if we as a society mm. are ashamed of anger then we can't have open hostility that's inappropriate it doesn't fit within the bounds of the construct that we have said is appropriate um it's not socially it's, it's a faux pas you know, and, and so you can't be angry on the surface, but how then do you relate to the internalized anger when there's that energy, that drive to justice that can't go anywhere? It becomes usually passive aggressive, right? Mm, mm-hmm. You know, and, and then there becomes this way of seeking justice in an incredibly inefficient manner. Mm-hmm. There's nothing efficient about passive aggression. No. You know, um, it's, it's, it's like the bite where it's like, I don't have the language or I don't have the ability to communicate it directly to you. But rather than being as direct as a bite, it's like, I'm going to put a tack on your chair and I'm going to make sure you don't know that I did it or at least that you don't know that I know you did it. Mm. You know, like some level of disconnection where it's like, I can't just be straight up with you. Yeah. And then it just causes more pain. Yeah. Hinia has this, my, my twin Hinia has this big thing about um, authenticity in conflict as opposed to here. intentionality. And, and um, myself coming from a place where, and I think this is actually rich for this conversation, um, I have experienced anger go too far. And a lot of it is in my sensitivity that I have become hypersensitive to anger and um, perceive it as threat mm. very often. And so for my own emotional safety, um, I have preferred conversations that are more structured. Um, and in that structure, something like I statements, um, acknowledging intent, um, as well as impact, um, you know, uh, taking turns, not talking over each other, uh, mm. recognizing, being in tune with their body, recognizing when the anger starts to come up and knowing how to take measures to calm oneself down, breathing, taking a pause, whatever it might be. And all of that is in a way of mitigating anger, and I would say my 
giving myself more credit, <laughs> um, my hope or desire is uh, to mitigate reckless anger. Mm. The Because, ang- again, anger is powerful like fire. I'm thinking about this scene in Avatar The Last Airbender <laughs> when Aang is first learning to firebend, and it he loses control. It, it flies out of his hands, and it burns um, Katara, and he didn't mean to, but it just, like, fled. It overtook him. And then the moral of the story goes on where Commander Zhao at that point? At that point, Commander. Commander Zhao um, is not in control of his anger and ends up burning down his own fleet of ships uh, as Aang manipulates him. Um, point being, though, is anger can, take the, can get the best of us. It is an energy, a power that is really strong. Um, and so how do we use anger, not let anger use us? I think that might be the question. Yeah. Yeah, this brought up the the idea, this question in me of empathetic anger. Mm. And the the limitations on anger is, I mean, a a justice-centered anger of like, if you get get angry on behalf of someone, Mm -hmm. that's probably a good thing. Is it always? No, no, because like, you know, let's, I, I mean, I'm thinking of... You know, I have a friend who was constantly misgendered by their parents. Mm. And if I got angry about it on my friend's behalf, I would have blown their cover. Yeah. And yeah, it would yeah. have been unsafe for them. Because they weren't out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or an even more rudimentary example. I appreciate the n- more nuanced one there. But uh, let's say someone uh, says something mean to you and I get angry on your behalf and I beat them up. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> you know, it's like, does that make a difference if it's coming from me and not from you? Yeah. No, so, it's still violent. But but the other side of like empathetic anger for yourself is that like a little bit you were saying like it's really, really hard. Like if you feel slighted or if there's a safety issue that's happening or something, that's the hardest. Like we do. We go back to our like lizard brain amygdala mm-hmm. of like fight or flight, freeze, fawn, whatever the, the yeah. things are. Um, and we're not thinking rationally. Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest time to be empathetic. Mm. You know, someone just does something to me. The You know, bullying is one of the great examples of this. I worked with bullying prevention for a while. And one of the narratives in our play is like, empathy. Why is this person doing this thing? And that question is such a selfless, beautiful, important thing to do. Also, it kind of doesn't matter. If someone's doing a thing, like, to some extent, just get it to stop address the why and the how later. It's such a morally convoluted thing. It becomes very mm. complex because you get this idea of hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. And so so now I'm just critiquing myself because I was saying empathetic anger might be a solution, but it has its own well limitations. Here's, if I want to take what you're saying, I, I think um, where I hear empathetic anger being valuable is if you recognize that hurt people hurt people and that the person who has caused you harm. And I think this is a different conversation for institutions. Cause again, institutions are mm. non-persons. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't have a soul. They don't have a personality and experience that we can have empathy for. But with a person, if you recognize that the harm that they are causing is because of ways that they have been harmed and you have empathy for them in that regard, you can still be angry, but I think perhaps your anger shifts from at the person mm. to their behavior. Yeah. I understand why you're doing this. I still hate that you're doing this. Or their circumstances, yeah, that caused it. Or Yeah. Yeah, or we, exactly. A step further is you can be angry at the system that has put them in the place where they're causing whatever, doing whatever action. But, but I think it, it, 
to that extent, we might get to the place where we sort of accept their behavior. And I don't think that empathetic anger requires that we accept harmful behavior. No, forgiveness, this is a, this is a thing that really ticks me off. When people say, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. As a forget, as like if someone apologizes and you say, oh, forget about it, or it doesn't matter, or it's okay. That's not forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness is, yes, it matters. It hurt me. It wasn't okay. You are okay, and I am okay, yeah. and we can, like, move on from this. Yeah, I was thinking about, like, how would we define forgiveness? And there are a couple things that I think. One is is letting go of your anger at the person. Mm. So I think I can forgive you, and that doesn't mean I've forgotten or even recovered from what you've done to me. Mm. Um, but it's, it's, I'm not at a point where I'm hating you. I'm angry at you. Or another idea is the canceling of debt. I, I forgive your debt, mm. right? Um, and so I think in relationship, social contracts tend to have this implicit sense of balance where, mm-hmm. you know, if I give to you, you might feel obligated to give back in some regard. And I think there are healthy and unhealthy ways that this can take form. Of like, if I love you and you're like, oh my goodness, and now I just want to love you too, that could be put in the language of debt. Mm. Um we might want to, you know, nuance or problematize that, but I, I think for the sake of this conversation, we can look at it that way. But, yeah. you know, if I harm you, in some ways, I owe you. I'm responsible for reconciliation. Yeah, That is a debt that I have incurred by harming you. I, th- I think that's fair to say. And in saying you forgive me, you're forgiving my person for the burden of that debt. Now, that doesn't mean that all the harm has been absolved, but that... Perhaps it is no longer a guilt or burden that I have to carry. And so if, if there is harm that is left to be resolved, I then have the proactive and the, the agency to choose to engage that, where you have forgiven me of the need to, mm-hmm. but I can still choose to. And I think that's what the beauty of relationship is that um, healing and the work of true intimacy should be one of choice, not one of burden. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One big caveat about um, forgiveness is I don't think it necessarily means restoration of relationship. Sure. Yes. Um, which brings up this really important question. In, in the same way that we can like talk about sin in a whole bunch of different ways and no single one captures the entirety of what it is, or we can talk about evil or, or whatever. I think that it's a really important to talk about a couple different modes of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You, you brought up a couple of them, canceling of debt. Um, I, I think another one is... A really important question. Is forgiveness something about yourself or something about the other? And this is really Mm -hmm. important because we've been talking on a really human level, but I think it's important to talk on a God level because we talk about God forgiving our sins, but we have no way of hurting God. Mm. Like any theology that says like, you know, how do you think that makes God feel when you do blah, (laughs) blah, blah? Or like you're putting another nail in the cross of like when you sin. And that's... That's a bad My sin theology. upon his shoulders. See, I think that's true. Yeah. But you're not adding, because of, I think, just the way that time works. Like, Jesus took all sin for all time. So technically, yeah, you're, like, adding more sin on Jesus' shoulders or whatever. I think that's the way that it technically works. Yeah, so just quick comment yeah. on that. If we think about sin as a, a list, a, a legal list of things that we can't do, that we, we break the law against yeah. God or Hansinger so. Hansinger calls that the forensic mode. The forensic mode. I, I like to think about it as the, like, jurisdictional or like the courtroom mode um but then it you know makes sense of like adding sins because like Mm -hmm. oh i i said a bad word i 
was angry at this person. I whatever, you know. Yeah. That seems like a number of sins that we're adding. But if we think about it as relationship, it's it's no longer numeric. That's true. You know, so yeah. again, the idea of putting more sin on, it's like, well, if it's just relational disconnection, yeah. it's not adding. Yeah. So th- see, another another area where looking at things in different modes is helpful, maybe even essential. But but in this mode of God forgiving us, mm-hmm. it's something that God does for us our sake mm-hmm. whereas a different a different view you know so if, if you forgive someone you're doing it for their sake mm. but you can forgive someone who's never asked for forgiveness you can you know i have had to do a lot of work of forgiving my dead grandfather yeah right he so it's not for his sake at all mm. it's for my sake and so ha- one mode of this way of thinking about forgiveness is I am releasing myself yeah. from the burden of carrying the weight that they have put on me. Yeah. I think we can't think about forgiveness outside of relationship. Yeah. And relationship is necessarily multiple parties. Yeah. You know? So you're, <laughs> if you don't forgive someone, you are still in relationship with that person. Yeah. Even if you move away, even if they die. Yeah, you're carrying, you're carrying something. some part of the relationship. Yeah. It's it's both forgiving for another but also forgiving for oneself. Um and I think in our modern conversation, that's a part that a lot of people push back against. Yeah. Um that you need to forgive for yourself. Are you It's cuz it it's it feels like it's victim blaming like I have to do all of this work. May yeah, I think that's Forgiving for the other person is is victim blaming of like someone hurt you and now you you're responsible for their forgiveness. That feels like victim blaming, but forgiveness for yourself maybe sounds pejorative. It's like mm. um, it, it takes away your agency. It's this sense of like someone wronged you, and now you carry that wrong with you until you forgive them. Mm. You know, and I think that's what people are saying is like I can heal without forgiving, and without being too controversial, I don't know if you can. Uh, yeah. You know, I, and, and I think the, the nuance, like it has to come to the nuance of like, you know, what, what does it mean to forgive? And, and are we actually engaging in forgiveness? If we say, um, again, the idea of canceling debt, if the other person is no longer responsible for caring for me, is that not a form of forgiveness that we have relieved them of that responsibility, Mm. you know, um, this gets to my spirituality, the idea that if you cannot see the goodness of God in another person, you cannot fully see it in yourself. Yeah. You know, uh, Dorothy Day says, I've come to the realization that I only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Mm-hmm. And that is a spiritual reality. Yeah. You know, and so I think in forgiveness too, it, it is helping you be more in tune with yourself by releasing other people of the spite and anger that you hold against them that perverts the way that you see them. Yeah. Can I take a couple of minutes to explain, like, one of my biggest uh, personal experiences of forgiveness? Please. That'd be great. So I was uh, part of a church for a while. Mm. I got involved in every single, like, possible volunteer capacity. I loved this church and felt very loved by this church. You were probably, like, top five people of that whole multiple thousand church who was most involved. I was there more than some most <laughs> the of pastors, the pastors yeah. <laughs> on yeah. staff. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> The church uh, was not affirming um, and started to go more and more down the route of being less and less affirming Mm. in terms of limiting conversations on LGBTQ issues, um, 
in terms of limiting uh, leadership and representation. Uh, very rarely would they say anything. They, they would never really say anything positive about LGBTQ people. And then anytime they would say something really negative or problematic, they would rarely kind of realize it or apologize for it because they mm-hmm. didn't think it was wrong. Uh, they didn't think what they had said was wrong. They thought LGBTQ stuff was wrong. And so anything they said kind of against it, they didn't acknowledge that it was harmful and all of that. So, I mean, I was too, I was very patient, um, often counseling of like, here's a thing that you said that's problematic. And like, they would take that and use it as a way to say like, oh yeah, my queer friend said this, 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 and is okay with me saying this and this. And I'm like, oh gosh. So they, and eventually they kicked me out of the church. Yeah. They, they said, you can't be in leadership here anymore. It was, it was a bad situation. Um, it was not the worst as far as stuff that can happen in LGBTQ uh, not affirming spaces, but it was bad. To the point where I was having like nightmares about the senior pastor and, and stuff. It was not great. So I was going off to seminary and I was like, I cannot, like I, I had all this resentment. I had this like negativity building up. I was like, I do not want to be the type of person in 20, 30 years where I'm saying like, oh yeah, this church and this pastor and whatever like that just felt very burdensome to my soul maybe even unchristian Mm. um there is a certain translation of the lord's prayer that says forgive us if we forgive Mm. those who sin against us but um uh i guess also (laughs) there's the i don't small parable of like if you're gonna go this this happens both ways in two of the gospels it says if you're gonna bring something to the altar um, and you realize someone has some beef against you or you have some beef against someone else, um, leave your gift and go make up with them, fix that, and then offer your gift. And mm. the parable says it two different ways. If someone has something against you, that's on you to have to fix. Yeah. yeah. And it says if you have something against someone else, that's mm. on you to have to fix. Mm. So anyway, back to that. I went back to this pastor and well, I talked about it with my father and a, a lot of people. I actually convened a small council of the wisest people that I knew mm-hmm. to try to figure out what do I do with this. And my dad suggested this Ethiopian style of reconciliation and, and forgiveness, at least, where you take a big rock and instead of smashing them in the head with it, you <laughs> you you give it to them. You say this is this represents the weight, the burden that you have placed on me, mm-hmm. and I don't want it anymore. I'm giving it back to you. So you make you create this kind of object lesson. And so I did this. I put little like like carpet uh, squares on the bottom of this relatively big rock, maybe 10 pounds or something. Yeah, it was pretty heavy. <laughs> um, and I gave it to him and I said, you have, you have burdened me, you have harmed me. And I listed a couple like legitimate ways in which this had happened. I did all of the, like, you may not have meant it. You you know, I did all of this articulate stuff. And I was like, here's the thing. I don't want you to keep this burden either. I mean, unless you want to claim it, unless you would, like, display this rock on your desk and explain with pride to every single person who walked in, who asked about it, that you had, like, done these things and you don't want to apologize for any of them, keep it. Keep the rock. But my hunch is that you don't feel that this thing was authentic to you and what God wanted you to do. So I encourage you to hand this rock over to God. Mm -hmm. And when you feel like you've done that, throw it in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Release yourself of this burden as well Mm. and ask for forgiveness. How did you respond? Um, 
very pastorally. Um, but it didn't matter. Yeah. But it didn't matter because I walked out of that building and I was like, I feel like I've lost something. Mm. What's what's gone? And I was like, oh wait, it's this mm. this burden. That's beautiful. It it felt like it was gone. Yeah. Um, and now you know I I have very consciously on my part restored that relationship to neutral. Mm. If I see if I see that pastor on the street, you know, it helps me not have nightmares anymore and stuff. Like, I don't suddenly love him or everything that he's done. True. But none of it has affected me. Uh, none, none of it has the power to drag me down anymore. Yeah. And I will not hold any of it against him. Yeah. So that, I mean, that to me was a life-changing experience to be able to forgive something of that magnitude. And it wasn't reconciliation, it was relinquishing. Right. Yeah. In some ways, maybe reconciling you with yourself. Yes, and I think to some extent, if I have the authority to do this, reconciling him to God. Like, I'm handing him back to God because mm. part, of the, part of the infraction that I had committed against him was by claiming this stuff over him that really... You know, against you only, Lord, have I sinned. Yeah. Right? And that goes for him as well. Yeah. So what he had done really belongs to him oh, and this God. this is interesting. This is interesting because in my perception of justice, real briefly, I don't think that we can, and I, I probably mentioned this on a previous episode recently, but I don't think that we can be the arbiters of justice. That righting wrongs is not something that we actually have the capacity to do, particularly in terms of big things. Like, if you kill someone, you can't right that wrong. No. That's it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if you go to prison for the rest of your life if right. you are tortured if you are killed yourself right none of that rights that wrong you know and so i believe that god is the only just mm -hmm. god is the one who is the true arbiter of justice and in the meantime the work that we can do is the work of healing however i put a lot of stake in god being just to the extent that i don't want like I just, the reason i'm bringing this up is because as you're talking about like reconciling him to god and um I want people to realize through God's eyes with the veil removed, you mm -hmm. know, we see now through a mirror dimly, but then fully, like I want people to see fully the wrong that they did as part of the reconciliation. And, and maybe that's something that I need to shed as well, is that desire for people to, to have justice. No, that was a big part of my, of my thing of like you, like unless I tell you all of this and unless we like address it here and now, you're going to have to deal with this in front of God. Yeah. But I do think there's a point of us being Christians and, and living this life now. And so yeah. my, my part of my uh, forgiveness was my confession of my own sin against him of having taken what was God's role to mm. do that. Mm. And so I wasn't, I wasn't restoring any justice. I was acknowledging the limitation of my ability to restore justice. And no, like he and I got tangled up in a justice issue. Yeah. And I was extricating myself and admonishing him to extricate himself as well. Mm. And both of us to turn back to God. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. We can't put all of our eggs in the basket of eschatological hope for yeah. justice because there is, again, healing work that needs to take place now. And when I say healing, I'm not talking just interpersonal um, I'm also talking like systemic, structural, mm. anything that causes harm. You know, if there is a disease that is causing your skin to peel, yeah. it's not just, you know, putting some band-aids over the wounds, but like, how do we 
eradicate this disease, you know, so that your body can then heal, you know? Um, and we have to focus on that. We have to prioritize that work. But um, the other side is, you know, at the end of the day, my anger cannot bring justice. Mm. Mm-hmm. My anger can only bring the passion and drive towards healing work and, and hopefully reconciliation when possible, yeah. when good, maybe. And um, true absolution and forgiveness in, in a disconnecting sense, the way that you have forgiven this pastor. You have, you have let go. Yeah. You've allowed him to move on and you to move on, not forgiving the ongoing no. sinful actions and harm that the church is causing, that he is causing, but letting go of his control over you. Yeah. It's pretty epic stuff. I feel like there's so much more. Yeah, so sorry. <laughs> this is, we were just barely scratching the surface here, but I think we said some good things. And so we'll leave you with this. Beloved, may you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you, you. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.